2: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 22 The Pilgrims and the Mayflower. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time we ended with a small group of religious dissidents making a deal with the Virginia Company for the right to establish a settlement in America. But before we continue their story, we have to go back. Back to the far off past of 13 years ago. In a previous episode, we mentioned the first attempt by the English to settle in the region of the modern state of Maine. In 1607, English settlers arrived at Sagadahoc, ready to start new lives for themselves. The colony failed within a year, due to a combination of the classic three obstacles to American settlement – disease, financial trouble, and conflict with the residents. When the English threw in the towel and departed, they left behind a deadly legacy – smallpox. According to Professor Anderson, between the departure of the Sagadahoc colonists in 1608 and the arrival of the pilgrims in 1620, smallpox and other European diseases killed thousands of Native Americans, with her estimates going as high as 90% of the population of the New England region being wiped out in 12 years. This will have a role to play in the events of 1620. While this pandemic was devastating Native communities, Back in Europe, political and religious disputes were building in intensity. We have already seen, at length, the difficult relationship between King and Parliament, but we have largely ignored one of the most important social elements in early modern England, and if we're going to talk about the pilgrims, then we can ignore it no longer. I am, of course, talking about religion. We've touched on religion in passing when it affects other events. In the contextual episodes, we briefly heard about the English Reformation under Henry VIII and Edward, the return to the Catholic fold under Mary and her husband Philip of Spain, and then the accession of the Protestant Elizabeth who instituted the religious settlement. Colonisation, both in the New World and in Ireland, had religious motivations, to try and convert the natives and outmanoeuvre Catholic Spain in the New World, and to create a loyal population in Ireland. Many of the dangers James faced upon his accession were a product of religious conflict. The main and by-plots were hatched by Protestants, concerned that the king might be too lenient on Catholics, and particularly Jesuits. The gunpowder plot came from an opposite direction, Catholics who had believed that James would bring toleration, and when he failed to do so, decided to remove him and his Protestant government. Foreign policy was influenced by religious convictions, or at least that's what Parliament and some members of court wished. Spain and a Catholic France were to be opposed, and the Dutch, the Huguenots, and the Protestant princes of the Holy Roman Empire supported As we saw last episode, these concerns played a part in the downfall of one royal favourite and the rise of another. These are just some of the ways that religious convictions have interacted with our narrative so far, and are only the English examples. Religion was inherent within early modern society, and was far more important than simple life or death, and so it's no surprise that it is part of almost every topic we've covered so far. Since the Elizabethan settlement in 1559, which included the Acts of Supremacy and Uniformity, the Church of England had been under royal governance. The Book of Common Prayer was established in every church. Catholic trappings, like stone altars, were replaced with wooden tables for communion, and images were removed. At the 1563 Convocation, the 39 Articles were passed, which defined the doctrine of the Reformed Church of England. Throughout Elizabeth's reign, nonconformity was strongly punished. This included both Catholics who sought a return to Rome, as well as Protestants who wanted further reform. As far as the government was concerned, the Church of England was the Church of the English, and attempts to change it were highly restricted. A High Commission was established which could hand down punishments for non-conformity outside of the bounds of English common law. So what was the religious situation when James came to the throne? Later in the century, we'll begin to see the term Anglicanism thrown around, and the concept of Via media, or the Middle Way, under Charles and Archbishop Lord. I'm not a divine, my knowledge of theology is fairly limited, so to avoid the risk of making incorrect assumptions, perhaps it's simpler to describe the two most important elements of James's Church of England. It was not beholden to Rome, and the king was its supreme governor. We will start by looking at the Catholics, and then take a look at the Protestants, who can roughly be split into two groups – Those who were reasonably content with the state of the Church of England, the conformists, and those who were not, the reformists. As a disclaimer, with something as difficult to pin down as religious belief, categorising people into boxes is very difficult, and so consider the following definitions as fluid, overlapping, and not universally applicable. But with that enormous caveat, let's begin. James was remarkably lenient towards Catholics, both recusants and crypto-Catholics, over the first half of his English reign. While showing a hatred of the Jesuits, they were mere instigators of rebellion in his eyes, James abhorred violent repression. He assured the Earl of Northampton before his accession that he would not pursue any Catholics that, will be quiet and give but an outward obedience to the law in james's opinion the elizabethan recusancy laws which demanded death for nonconformists were barbaric in the view of croft in 1608 as he dispatched the justices of the peace to the counties to dispense justice he demanded that they deal with catholic priests leniently not dealing out violence unless they themselves were violent and instead seeking to expel them. Now, this is hardly a liberal policy to modern ears, but still, it's better than burning. Even after the gunpowder plot, James urged calm, publicly declaring that almost all his Catholic subjects were loyal. The purchase of baronetcies was one such way of proving that James still trusted his Catholic subjects by allowing them to prove their loyalty and be promoted. James did, however, have no intention of allowing the number of Catholics to grow. He did not often resort to execution, but the Jacobean government had a multitude of non-violent weapons to use in this war of ideas. The clearest one was the Oath of Allegiance. Passed in the aftermath of the Gunpowder Plot, the government presented the oath as one of civil obedience rather than spiritual. It aimed at removing the ever-present threat of papal deposition, which was one of the powers of the Pope that James vehemently disagreed with. The oath was a way to head that danger off, not that James was ever going to listen to the Pope, but his Catholic subjects might. Those who took the oath accepted James as their lawful and rightful king, and the swearer vowed to defend the king's rights against the interference of Rome. Quote, I do, from my heart, abhor, detest, and abjure as impious and heretical this damnable doctrine and position that princes which be excommunicated and deprived by the Pope may be deposed or murdered by their subjects, or any other whatsoever. End quote. Generally speaking, the Oath of Allegiance has been seen as a fairly moderate act, a reasonable reaction to a Catholic plot against the government. However, this is not a unanimous opinion. Professor Michael Questier, in his 1997 article, Loyalty, Religion and State Power in Early Modern England, English Romanism and the Jacobean Oath of Allegiance, argues the opposite. It's very... Moderate appearance was intentional, he argues, because it split the English-Catholic communities. Some found it unobjectionable, or at least unobjectionable enough to take it. Others opposed it as an act of unforgivable heresy. Quote, The oath was possibly the most lethal measure against Romish dissent ever to reach the statute book, says Questier. It divided loyal and disloyal Catholics, as might be expected, but it also split loyalists from loyalists, and even dissenters from each other, while splitting the priests from their congregations. How could this be so divisive? Well, loyal Catholics might jump at the chance to prove their loyalty, and see no spiritual danger in such an oath. They followed the Roman Catholic faith, but didn't feel any allegiance to the Pope or agree with his secular authority. Contrarily, loyal Catholics could see no division between their faith and the authority of the Pope, and so swearing this oath would be heretical. Disloyal Catholics, including the Jesuits, were also split. The majority naturally hated the oath and denounced it from the rooftops, but some considered it worth swearing. An oath to a heretic was not a valid oath, and if it kept God's loyal flock out of prison and working to return the kingdom to the fold, well, it was worth swearing. The strength of the Oath of Allegiance was in its ambiguity, and immoderate moderation. Take, for example, the part I quoted earlier. It did not reject the right of the Pope to excommunicate the king, That would be a step too far. It was a central pillar of Roman Catholic doctrine. No Catholic would swear it. What it did, though, was make Catholics swear that they would not act on the excommunication by working against the king. This seemed much more reasonable. As Questia puts it, quote, "...the oath could extort more, paradoxically, by asking less." by damaging, in fact, a Catholic's allegiance to Rome without going quite beyond the bounds of a widely held body of contemporary opinion about the deposing power which was not exclusively Protestant. Put another way, most English subjects of James agreed that he was the rightful king, and that a foreign power had no authority to dictate whether that was the case. But, If Rome could be ignored on this subject, then it was easier to dismiss its authority in other matters. It should be said that this is only one interpretation of the Oath of Allegiance, and there's debate over exactly what James's intention was with introducing it. To discuss both the conformists and the reformists, I am going to draw heavily on Dr. Charles Pryor's defining the Jacobean Church, Since Anglican isn't the best word for mainstream adherence to the Church of England, we will instead use the term conformists. Like the name suggests, they were those who conformed to the ceremonies and decisions established by the Church hierarchy. Conformists considered the English Church as both a spiritual and political institution, as Pryor puts it, a mingling of doctrine and law. The concept of adiaphora was central to this, that is, that only some aspects of the church were vital to salvation. The non biblical elements of the church, such as bishops and certain ceremonies, were not harmful to people's souls and helped keep their congregations in line with the important stuff. In the words of Pryor, conformists emphasized the visible institution of the church. That blended essential and indifferent elements of doctrine. The Church was a state church in every way. The power of the government was applied to enforce conformity with Church doctrine, and the Church returned the favour when the Crown required stability. The other side of the Church of England were the Reformists, or the Godly, or more famously, the Puritans. Now, the term Puritan was an insult, and more often they referred to themselves as the godly, or some of them the elect. The reformists considered those non-harmful elements of the church to be, in fact, incredibly harmful to the Christian soul. If it wasn't in the scripture, then it shouldn't be in the church. A particular target of their ire was Episcopalian governance, meaning the bishops. Some insisted that the Church's authority came from Parliament, which was responsible for enforcing true doctrine. Others insisted on, essentially, congregation-level authority, with no minister able to rule over others, since all true faithful didn't need such guidance. These are incredibly broad generalisations, as like I said, I'm not a divine. Each group was fractious, The Conformists disagreed over whether the Episcopacy was truly independent of the Crown, or whether bishops were simply another instrument of government. Most of the writers in both camps came from the same religious and scholarly background, either Oxford or Cambridge usually, and were employed within the Church in various positions. In 1603, James expressed his views towards the religious situation in England in a revised edition of the Basilicum de Ron, the political treatise addressed to Henry Frederick, but published widely. In this, he points the finger at the two extremes, the Papists, meaning the Catholics, of course, and the Puritans, who James defined quite limitedly as Anabaptists and described their threat as coming from their opposition to civil authorities. This was knowingly naive of James, who was well aware that by that definition there really weren't many reformists in the English Church, and certainly none with any influence. But in defining a much more limited definition of Puritan, and it was used as an insult, James was sending a message. His problem was with those who demanded radical changes to the organisation of the Church. Those who disagreed with James, or the Church hierarchy but still followed the law, were fine. Or at least that's what he says in the Basilicon. Within a year of taking the throne, James convened a conference at Hampton Court Palace. This was intended to ease tensions between conformists and reformists, and some level of compromise was reached between the new king and the rival factions. The king would not abandon episcopacy, twice declaring no bishop, no king, and he demanded that all English clergy agree to three articles crafted by Archbishop Whitgift thirty years prior. These had been opposed at the time, And still were now, and more than 80 ministers refused to subscribe to the articles. In return, the High Commission, which punished non conformity, was to be reformed, and a few of the most objectionable parts of the Book of Common Prayer were removed. This conference would also lead to perhaps the single most long lasting religious legacy of James's English reign the commissioning of the King James Bible. It took seven years to complete, but in 1611 the work was finished. This partly appeased complaints from the reformists, who pointed out supposed errors in previous translations that posed serious theological concern. So, that is a brief summary of the religious situation in England, and what it was that the small group of religious dissidents wanted to leave behind. But the Pilgrims were not part of any of the three religious factions I've just outlined. No, they were even more extreme than the Reformists. To the Pilgrim Fathers, the Church of England was beyond Reform. They were Separatists, and so faced the danger that their rejection of the Church of England meant that they also rejected the King as its Governor. From a certain point of view, this was treason. The group that would establish Plymouth Colony were mostly made up of a congregation that had left England for the Netherlands, where they had lived for the previous decade. However, they struggled to survive in the urban sprawl of Leiden, and further feared that their children were eschewing English customs for Dutch. Existing English colonies in America were not a suitable escape. Not only were they part of the Church of England... But their societies were hardly the model of pious living that the Puritans wanted. What they needed was some kind of
0: new England. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.
2: On the other side of the Channel, two of the investors in the Plymouth subsidiary of the Virginia Company, Sir Edwin Sandys and Sir Fernando Gortes, had begun, from 1618, encouraging small groups to form their own subordinate companies, which were then granted patents to settle on the eastern coast of America. This was perfect from their point of view, most of the risks and expenses of colonisation would be taken on by the colonists themselves, through their company. The parent companies could then profit from the tenants and natural resources that a successful colony would bring in, since they would establish the administrative system for the settlement, christened the Council of New England, and consisting of forty appointed persons. And if the colony wasn't successful... If the colonies failed like so many others, well, the risk and capital investment had come from others, so the parent companies could just try again later. It was to Sandis that the pilgrims applied. In July 1620, they established a voluntary stock company, with the agreement that the settlers would build the settlement, and then half the profit from farming and fishing over seven years would be split between the England-based investors and the colonists, and the Pilgrims each received shares worth ten pounds and ten shillings each. Not all of the legal niceties had been settled by the time the Pilgrims decided to set out their new merchant friends would handle all of that while they sorted out creating a godly community on earth on the sixteenth of September, sixteen twenty 101 settlers, along with a crew, sailed from England on the Mayflower. The numbers of settlers had been intended to be much greater, but the second vessel, the Speedwell, was not well at all, springing a link either as it journeyed from the Netherlands to England, or after the two vessels left to cross the Atlantic and so had to turn back. I've seen conflicting accounts. The Mayflower continued on, and over the two-month journey, The colonists decided how exactly they would manage their new society. The four elders who seemed to have led the party were John Carver, Edward Winslow, William Brewster, and William Bradford. Their intention was to create a society of the godly in the New World, but these elders were well aware that not all of the Mayflower's passengers and few of the crew were of the same religious mindset. Many had merely taken advantage of the opportunity to migrate to the New World, while many of the pilgrim's servants were following their masters, but not their master's faith. This is to say that not everyone on board the Mayflower was united behind the same overall goal, never mind the specifics of how and where they should live. These issues came to a head when the ship reached the coast of America, some 200 miles to the north of where they had intended. Dissenters in the party argued that their patent was no longer valid, and with it, any agreement to follow the administration set up by the Council of New England. This put the Pilgrim Elders in a tough spot. If a firm hand wasn't on the tiller, they risked the whole project either failing outright or diverting from its original intentions. To this end, in order to ensure that their pious mission was not hijacked by the less godly among their number, they drafted a compact, and invited all forty-one free men aboard to sign it. This was, of course, the Mayflower Compact, a document that is often seen as one of the founding documents of American democracy, an example of what would come to pass over the next few centuries. While it is true that it gave precedent to the concept that a body politic could and should agree to its own governance, its immediate raison d'etre was, in the words of Dr. Richard Middleton, to preserve power and authority in the hands of the few. The compact was signed on the 21st of November, 1620. Cape Cod had been sighted ten days earlier, after which the Mayflower sailed to the estuary of the Hudson River, but bad weather and a dangerous shoreline forced them to return to Cape Cod. The Mayflower sailed along the coast searching for a good harbour, landing for supplies and personal hygiene needs as they went, but only found their new home in mid-December. The location that would come to be known as Plymouth Colony had access to a natural harbour a nearby defensible hill and some seemingly man-made clearings sown with corn these were the fields planted by the Sagadahok indians now nearly wiped out from european diseases to the colonists who knew nothing of the epidemic this was clearly a sign that god had cleared the ground for his elect as the settlers built a rough defensive palisade on the 25th of december they found nearby burial mounds, and took some of the buried corn. To their credit, aware of the significance of these mounds, the settlers intended to pay for their looting when they could, and a few months later apparently did so in trade with the remaining Indians. Whether the settlement would have survived the winter without this fortune is unlikely. After the palisade was finished, the next building to be constructed was a communal storehouse, and once complete, each family began constructing their own houses. This was one of the major differences between Plymouth Colony and the other English settlements in America. The colonists had migrated in family groups, unlike the populations of Virginia and Bermuda, which were largely unmarried men searching for their fortunes. Plymouth Colony also benefited from the Mayflower Compact, It was effective in keeping disputes to a minimum, not just among the godly, but also with the strangers, those who were not separatists. Nevertheless, in one major way, the Plymouth colony was not so different to other English colonies. Over half of the original 101 settlers were dead within a few months of arrival, from a combination of starvation, the elements, and disease. Perhaps the zeal of the colonists would have run out in the face of certain death, and the colony follow so many others into failed obscurity. But then Somerset rolled into town. Samoset was a high-ranking member of the Abenaki people, and by the time he appeared in Plymouth, he had learned the basics of the English language from fishermen. With this, he greeted the settlers, and returned multiple times with other Abenaki to trade and supply the Separatists. On one of these occasions, he appeared with Squanto, who we have seen before. Squanto spoke much better English due to his time in England after having been, you know, kidnapped in a raid. When he'd returned, he'd found his tribe, the Patuxet, extinct. In Plymouth, he taught the colonists several farming techniques to increase the yield and type of crops they could grow, such as planting squash between rows of corn, and fertilising the fields with fish offal. More famously, he acted as a translator between the English and the sachem, or sachem of the Wampanoag nation, Massasoit. A treaty was established between them in March 1621. Much like in Virginia, the Native Americans intended to make the most of these strange people, Trade was in the interests of both the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag, but Massasoit was also attracted by the potential military aid that the new colony could provide him against his neighbours, the Narragansett and the Massachusetts nations. We will see how that works out in a future episode. For the colonists, they quickly grew uneasy about how often the Wampanoag visited their new neighbours. Every visit required hospitality, and for the resource-stretched colonists this was increasingly resented. Eventually, the Wampanoag were told that only Massasoit was allowed to visit, and even then he had to make an appointment. With the treaty signed, the Plymouth colonists were able to survive until they could harvest their crops, at which point they did so, killed some wild turkeys, and held a harvest festival that included all of the surviving colonists as well as almost a 100 Wampanoag, including Sachem Massasoit. This feast is, of course, known today as the first Thanksgiving on American soil. Before we leave off for today, there is some news for those who don't follow me on Twitter. I have been invited to speak at the Sound Education Conference this October, held at Harvard University. I've been sitting on this news for a month or so, as I got confirmation for this and that, but at least it means I get to announce it in the episode on the first years of Massachusetts. If I'd started Pax Britannica a few months earlier, the narrative would probably be at the founding of Boston itself, which would have been nice, but oh well. My paper will be on the American colonies during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, and it would be great to see some listeners there. As it gets closer, there'll be more information, but I'm very excited to visit America for the first time. I might have to do some kind of fundraiser to help pay for it, but that's yet to be seen. Speaking of, thank you to my House of Lords. Without them, I'm not sure I could even consider travelling halfway across the world for a podcast convention. So thank you to the Royal Headsman, executed today, Her Grace, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersitch, the Most Honourable Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Right Honourable Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens, the Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan, the Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner. The Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence. The Earl of Hereford, Christopher Remo. And the recently created, Right Honourable Earl of Dunbar, Angus Wilson. If you want to join their ranks, go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Every pledged here comes with a personalised, ad-free RSS feed, and the higher ranks come with extra perks. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music in today's episode, my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.